Hello and welcome to this episode of the PE podcast. My name is Jack Jacob and I am your host. In this episode, I talk with Richard Stubbs, who's the CEO of Yorkshire and Humber Academic Health Science Network. We talk about how Richard grew up in the mining community in South Yorkshire and how he is the first of four generations not to go down to the pits. Richard fell in love with golf at an early age, looking up to Tiger Woods as his hero, almost giving him a mixed race kid in a white working class community permission to play. After studying politics and economics at university, where he contributed heavily to student radio, Richard worked at the BBC, which he values as an experience teaching him a lot about leadership and making the impossible happen. Wanting to do something he really cared about, he joined the NHS graduate scheme, where since he's had an 18 year long career. Richard provides insight on the diversity conversation, sharing his personal thoughts on racism and unconscious bias as well as his views on wider issues highlighted by George Floyd and the pandemic. Please do enjoy this episode as we get to know the person behind the job title. This episode of the p podcast is sponsored by the Virtual HPN Expo. The Virtual HPN Expo will be taking place across the 17th and 18th of November on a state-of-the-art virtual events platform. The event will be CPD accredited, and will host over 1,000 delegates across the two days. There'll be 40 exhibitors, 80 speakers, addressing one main auditorium room and four breakout theatres, with the exhibitors being hosted across four exhibition zones. There'll be key themes around health inequalities, diversity and inclusion, workforce and well-being, AI and RPA, telehealth and virtual care, and improvement and innovation. We'll also be touching upon culture and leadership. To register as a delegate or to inquire about exhibiting, please visit our website, which is www.virtualhpnexpo.com. Richard, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's uh, a pleasure to have you on the show. And um, ultimately, we'll spend hopefully you know, the next 45 minutes to an hour getting to know you and, and the person behind your CEO job title. Um, and, that, and that's really what the series is about. Um, it's getting to know senior leaders from across the public sector and who, who they are and, and the values that they have. So, um, so yeah, so welcome. And, and um, let's, let's start at the beginning for you then. So talk to me about your childhood. Where did you grow up and, um, and what did you want to do growing up? Thanks, Jack. And hi, it's, it's, great, it's great to be here. So yeah, I mean, childhood. Um, so I, I grew up in um, in, God's, in God's own county. So I grew up I grew up in Yorkshire, in, in South Yorkshire, to be specific. Um, and I'm from a, a very small um, mining village um, called Motby, which is um, which is part of the, the wider Rotherham area. So I grew up in that in that pit village. Um, my family um, on my dad's side, you know, I come from a, a background of miners. So you know, four generations of miners uh, before me. I was the first the first um, one not to be you know heading down the, heading down the pit. Um, and my mum is uh, um, originally from Jamaica and she came over to England to be a nurse. So a really um, diverse, I suppose, family background in a pretty undiverse place to grow up, which, of course, when you've only got um, one example of, of, of or one scenario to kind of work from, it feels pretty normal. Everything feels pretty normal when, when it's your only reference point. So I, I had a pretty, um, you know, a pretty normal upbringing for anybody from a pit village. But I think... Um, looking back on it now, I think I can see, I can see the way I, um, or the, the kind of the, the the way in which I grew up, or the the environment, the environment in which I grew up through other people's eyes, 
and perhaps see more of what it looked like from an outsider's perspective. Amazing. So, um, so, so, you, so you grew up in Yorkshire. And, and what about school? Was you academic growing up, or um, or the opposite? I, yeah, I was pretty academic. I was, I was a nerd. I was, I was, I was pretty much a nerd. So, um, yeah, I was uh, always very good at maths and things like that. Um, I think uh, teachers would probably say, listening to this now, they'd probably say, yeah, probably didn't push himself as hard as he could do. Um, I and they're probably right, um, but yeah, I was kind of naturally able to to kind of um, get comfortable with with academia, and was always you know always competitive as well. I've always been really competitive, so I was, I, I've been competitive academically as much as I've been competitive in, in a in a sporting life. So didn't what, do too bad. What sports were you into growing up? Oh, football. Yeah, had football. To yeah. So you a Leeds fan? A Leeds fan. Are you a Leeds fan? Oh, Jack, no. No. Sheffield Wednesday all the way. Always has oh, been. Oh, there you go. So, uh, well, I, I was going to say, I would, um, you, you, if you were a Leeds fan, you'd be very happy right now. But um, yeah, yeah. Not, but, this, is not a, this is not a topic I'm willing to, did my agent not tell you, I'm not willing to talk about um, Sheffield Wednesday on the podcast. It's, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, you're, you support the wrong Sheffield, time. don't you? Yeah, it's, uh, it's not a good time. <laughs> Leeds, Leeds, Leeds hasn't helped. But yeah, I was always into football, played football um, relentlessly. And then golf as well, actually. When I was 11, I started to play golf. Um, which was really interesting because uh, uh, Tiger Woods is one of my heroes and, and he almost gave me permission to play. It was um, you know, really noticeable that someone like Tiger playing golf gave someone like me permission to play golf. And uh, so, yeah, I, was, I'm, I'm, I still am a, a massive... Why, why do you say that? Why do you say permission to play? Because it was so you, heavily you, white players. Yeah, when you, when you, when you come from a... Uh, when, you, when you're a mixed-race kid in a, in a, in a white, working-class um, bit of the country, I think, um, and you're always going to be the only non-white golfer, you know, even as a junior, in any golf course that you happen to join. Um, having the best player in the world, also being from a mixed race background and being as visible as Tiger was um, at that time, you know, is, is really, really important. And, um, and something that, um, you know, I, I do often think, you know, it gave me, and not that I needed to give myself permission, but it felt like I didn't have to justify why I was there because yeah. the best in the world is also from a mixed race background. Yeah, makes sense. We'll move on to the diversity agenda um, um, in, a, in a bit, but um, we'll talk more about, about that um, and, and perhaps some of the challenges you faced. Um, um, but um, I watched that Tiger Woods documentary um, only a couple of weeks ago and uh, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And, and his comeback is just special, incredible. Yeah. I watch it with my kids and it's one of the best um, sporting stories, I think, of, the, of this this whole last century so it's amazing yeah absolutely have you watched the michael jordan one on netflix i have I that have. as well that i watched that all in a day it was it just had <laughs> me. it had me it was like a sunday i put it on at night i thought oh I'll, I'll put this on and uh and i thought you know watch an episode or two ended up just not leaving the sofa um and and watched all of it in 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 one day yeah, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's also, I mean, we were talking about the fact that actually for us now, sports documentaries almost seem better than sport itself. It's just, you know, the, the, the stuff that's on at the moment is just yeah. extraordinary. But also it's a story of leadership as well. And there's the leadership story from, yeah. from the parables that you can take from that documentary are immense, I think. Mm. 100%, 100%. So um, so what, what did you want to do growing up then? Because, you know, looking at your your um, your career history and, and, and kind of some of the, the, the post-interview research on you, 
you've worked, you know, for the BBC, you've worked across the public sector. Um, was it always, was it always that vision you had or was there something different you wanted oh, to do? I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. I mean, I think, um, uh, again, you know, thinking about growing up in Morby, you didn't have careers advice as, as you know, we'd probably expect it to be now. It was, there was a sense of, well, you've got the pit over here, you've got these shops on the high streets, and that was probably the extent of my knowledge about what was available. I always remember wanting to be an architect, but I can't remember why I wanted to be an architect. I think it's just because I realised that architects existed. And um, so, no, I had no clue at all. And actually, when I... Um, when I went to university, I deliberately chose a degree um, based, I went, I went into politics, philosophy and economics at York. And the only reason I chose PPE was because it sounded like the kind of degree for somebody who's not made their mind about what they want to do. So it very much felt, you know, do this and you've still got options. You can work it out later. I just didn't feel like doing the kind of degree that sets you on a particular rigid path because I had, I had literally no idea what I wanted to do. Sure, sure. So was your first job at the BBC or, or did you have one before that? No, that was the first job. So I finished, um, well, I suppose, I mean, my, my path was that, um, so I went to university, uh, three years, obviously, PPE, loved the course, loved university, um, didn't expect this, but I, I fell into um, student radio when I was at university. And, 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 you know, after three months of being at university, my first year, I ended up becoming the station manager of, of what's called University Radio York, or URY, which is a student radio station for the university. And and ran that station for three years. So I was station manager for three years, had my own show, which, you know, is part of it, but actually um, fell in love with media as a, as a medium, radio in particular. And, and also, actually, when I look back, I, I kind of realised I also at that point started to fall in love with the idea of, of management and, and people and leading teams and making things happen through people and loved being station manager. I mean, probably too much because I think it took me away from my degree a huge amount. I think I could probably say that now. Sorry, mom. But yeah, I spent three years um, doing that job and um, and doing my degree on top. And so I came out of university thinking, well, I know enough now from the running a student radio station, but also by then having done loads of work experience, you know, so Minster FM, which is the local commercial station up there, and also BBC Radio York, obviously, had done enough radio, exper uh, radio experience to know that that's something I wanted to do. So I started knocking on the door to the BBC um, in the most um unproductive unknowing way and i think you know for me it was a life lesson but i basically spent a year um back at home um waiting every monday for the media guardian to come out at the time and that would come out with um, various jobs in the back pages i'd apply for every single one of them send off the cv not hear a thing back um not really have a clue why nothing was working and i think um and at the same time, trying to do as many um, work experience um, jobs as I could. So I, I ended up doing some some free, some um, independent films that were happening around Sheffield at the time and, and, um, and doing other bits and bobs where you could and trying to build that CV up and, and a bit of journalism at times as well. Yeah. It, basically, I got into the BBC um, through uh, uh, pretending to know something about, um, at the time, what was then defined as Afro-Caribbean culture okay so the, the bbc had an afro-caribbean unit and i was offered four weeks of work experience there and as far as i was concerned i was a kid from a pit village in the north of england um i probably knew a little bit more than my peers but not much sure. but that was the that was the cliched route in you know i was seen as somebody who fits that particular box um so i grabbed it and i decided well 
you know, this could have been any subject matter at all. I, you know, and my job would have been to, to get into it and find out more about it. So I think yeah. that was the beginning of my understanding of that as from a diverse point of view. So I clung on with my fingernails and yeah, the BBC was my first job. Managed to get my way through four weeks of work experience, managed to get a paid job, I think a six week contract. Um, spent my entire time at the BBC um, alternating between six week and 12 week contracts and um, ended up working in television more than radio actually, because there are just more jobs in TV. But um, I did a, you know, I absolutely loved it. I, lo I love making live TV. I love that sense of, um, you know, you're going to put the show on right here. And actually, um, I also saw the BBC as a bit of a finishing school. Uh, yeah. Again, it's kind of hindsight stuff. Um, it was pretty rocky at the time. The management wasn't great. We didn't do a good job of taking people from being producers or senior producers and then making them managers of people, which I kind of realise now. But at the time, you just think, I don't get on with my boss. But actually what you realise is um, there was actually a pretty bad culture and a pretty bad level of how you manage people at the BBC. Um, but what there was, was an incredibly competitive, absolutely can-do type of culture. So one of the things it really taught me was, to a certain extent, there's no such word as no. If somebody says, you know, I mean, in, in entertainment and features and, and the kind of shows I was making, you know, lots of daytime shows, things like that. If somebody says, I need two chihuahuas and a cowboy hat, and we're going, we're going live in five minutes, you find a way to make it happen. And I think that kind of, how do I make this impossible task happen is something that I took into the NHS when I joined the NHS, but it was absolutely kind of almost a, a subtle, far too subtle, kind of almost subconscious kind of development of this is how you excel. You just say yes, and then you yeah. work out how to do it later. Yeah, yeah there's, that, there's that famous Richard Branson quote, isn't there? about you know someone offers you a job and you don't know how to do it say yes and work out as you're doing it um or words yeah. to that effect um exactly. i'm sure i'm sure the way he says it's probably more punchy than i said <laughs> it but, um so, so how did you go then from you know bbc um researcher senior researcher that kind of stuff to then nhs graduate management um program yeah so and, and it's a question i ask i have to answer this quite a lot and, and for me it's completely linked because I, I see the bbc and the nhs as almost the same organization i mean they're kind of much loved three-letter acronyms, you know, um, part of the religion of the country, but also hugely bureaucratic, quite political kind of organisation. So I saw the um, them as, as as similar actually. But for me, the difference was um, having spent you know four years, maybe more at the Beeb and and Granada actually as well, working on shows that, to be honest, didn't float my boat. I mean, I, they were incredibly hard to make um, and, you know, a huge amount of talent went into making those shows, but actually I had no interest in the end product. And that was fine while it was fun and it was a lot of fun to work in television, um, still is. Um, but I, I started to think more about how much I cared about the end product and that's what made me think about a career change. And, and I had no intention of joining the NHS until that kind of light bulb moment of, I need to do something where if I'm going to put this kind of hard work in every day, I want to do something that I care about. I want to do something that makes a difference. And, and actually it wasn't the NHS as much. It was the graduate scheme that I, I just, I didn't know graduate schemes existed. It wasn't something that had been presented to me at university. I wasn't part of those kind of circles of milk rounds and things like that. They just mm. weren't opportunities that were given to me. So I was 25, I guess, before I realized that the notion of a graduate scheme and what it was all about fell in love with the NHS graduate scheme, you know, desperately wanted to get on it. And, and um, 
and I suppose it was a graduate scheme that then brought me to the NHS. So I, I um, worked really, really hard actually, and probably still one of the greatest things I think I've ever done of is getting on the graduate scheme. And I still yeah. remember, you know, where I was when I got the phone call um, to say I've been successful, and and it even felt at that moment, you know, that um, this was a life changing moment, you know, and, and um, I've never regretted it. So came into the NHS on that basis. And then I suppose, you know, fell in love with the scheme first and then fell in love with the NHS not too long after that. And, uh, you know, I've absolutely loved it. And this, you know, we're talking now, uh, this is now 18 years ago, but, um, and I've done a very, very career as you know, but yeah, love the place. Good. Amazing. Amazing. So talk to me about then, you know, then that, that kind of progressive journey from, you know, going into as a, as a, as a graduate um, management trainee, um, through to then, you know, chief executive now of um, Yorkshire and Humber uh, AHSN. Yeah, it sounds like a really um, smooth escalator, doesn't it? And it's um, well, there's, there's 18 years you've got a feeling to be fair. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, it, but I mean, yeah. I, I still can't believe I'm here to be honest. And um, I had no intention of this kind of job. I think when I started, I don't think I knew. I wasn't really looking beyond that. I think given my experience of working in Manchester in the BBC and having like 12 week contracts be the length of your your kind of um, your kind of a uh, 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 thought process coming to the graduate scheme and having a two year contract felt like an absolute lifetime. And, and, and I took it kind of one step at a time after that. I mean, I, as I finished the scheme in 2004, I did kind of what you'd call kind of the usual kind of graduate scheme, ex graduate scheme jobs. I was working in Sheffield at the time. I, I got a job at Doncaster in Doncaster Bastille hospitals, working on choosing book back in the day, and then um, um, managed to get myself a promotion to be head of business development. And it was very much so far, so, so normal. I think for me, um, two things changed for me, um, two, two, two big points. One was um, a return to training and development. So I'd done the scheme, obviously, loved that for two years, had four years off the scheme, working in Donny and, and Barcelona and, and loving that too. But then something called the Top Talent Programme came along, the, the Breaking Through Programme, which Yvonne Coghill, who's obviously um, you know, um, a legend, um, Yvonne had set up, and it was for people like me, middle management, BAME leaders, future leaders, I guess, who wanted to prove their ability. And what the Top Talent Programme did was basically say, you know, A, if you're good enough to get on it, we will put you into a, a significantly more senior role than you're currently doing, and B, we'll see what you do. And you'll either, you know, swim or sink. And um, it was pretty... Uh, ballsy, I think, of Yvonne to do that, but it gave me the ability to to genuinely prove my worth on a bigger stage, and and that was a, a massive, massive inflection point to my career. And and everything that's happened since, I kind of put back to that to that moment of being on the Breaking Through program. Yeah. But the, the second one was kind of happened almost at the same time, which was that there was a there was something uh, being created called the National Leadership Council, which was kind of a forerunner to what is now the leadership. Academy, yeah. and the leadership council was the you know pretty standard, you know great and good top of the office senior management and leaders of the NHS and the um, uh, Department for Health Executive coming together to say we want to work on our people and and our workforce and our, and our leadership. But what they did, which was fantastic for people like me, was they said, and we're going to have five places on this council for people who would consider to be aspiring future leaders um you know so a manager 
um, a nurse, an AHP, um, a, a mental health clinician, and a, and a, and a medical doctor. And I don't, you know, again, I don't know how I managed to get myself to be um, on that council as kind of the, the aspiring manager type of representative. And again, that just was a huge, huge um, experience for me. And I, I can, I remember every every meeting, every conversation, every 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 point of that National Leadership Council. And, and it was an opportunity for the first time in my career to be in in those kind of rooms where you start to soak everything up and you start to realize who people are, how things are happening, um, how to operate, how hopefully, hopefully not to embarrass yourself, but you know, I'm sure I didn't manage that all the time. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you know, to get a taste for this felt good, this felt like the kind of room where I wanted to be. And I think chiefly what it did was it said, you're now on show. And that can be both a positive or a negative. And, and if it's a positive, it's kind of up to you. And if it's a negative, it's kind of going to be down to your fault as well. But it gave me the opportunity to be noticed. And it gave me the opportunity to start putting my hand up to other stuff. Yeah. So all of a sudden then, um, you know, there was an opportunity. Um, for before me. you move on to that, yeah. before you move on to that, I've got, I've got, I want to ask a couple of questions around that. You know, you, you don't you don't fall into those things. That, that doesn't happen by accident. So I know you said you know you don't know how you got on there, and similarly with the with the management um, trainee program and um, and the, and then this. What do you feel you you showed to to get you on that? Because you know, I assume there was leadership qualities that shone through from a young age from yourself that that other people may have noticed before you necessarily noticed. Do you know, Jack, on that note, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what I, what I would say, I mean, what did I do to get on there? The, the, the thing that, the thing I learnt, or the thing I brought the most, I think, was my experience of trying to get into the BBC, was that sense of tenacity and yep. sharp elbowness. In the end, the only, the only way that a boy from a pit village in South Yorkshire got into the BBC was to stop thinking that, um, cold CVs and job applications to people you don't know were going to make any difference and to start thinking who do I know who works at the BBC and of course the answer was literally nobody but actually we did the whole six degrees of separation thing and, and my mom who by then was a, a you know a very senior executive nurse you know she knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody and it was literally six six links down this chain somebody said I know somebody who works in the BBC, I will try and get them to read a letter. And that's that's when you get your tentative first foothold. And, you know, and we'll, we'll come on to this later, I'm sure, but, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about levelling up the North and, and, you know, I've got two kids and I want them to find careers in the North is because, you know, I was really naive back then. I almost certainly am still very, very naive, but I do now recognise that for some people, some families, some places almost, they have an ability to reach out on these opportunities and their six degrees of separation is more like one link in the chain rather than six. And that for me, you know, when you start to recognize how these opportunities present themselves, then you start to think, well, do I join that game or not? And so when it comes to things like the National Leadership Council, that was where my thinking was. It was very much on, I know how this game is played. So it's not, it's not just, a bog standard letter application to somebody that I never met. It's a phone call. It's an email. It's a it's a lobbying position. It's anything. But you know, and maybe it's just a case of saying, I just need this kid to shut up, so I'll let him in. I don't know. But 
you know, eventually you managed to get a break. And I think it was a massive break for me to, to get onto them. I mean, I'm not sure how many other people even knew that the opportunity was there. I'm not sure how many people applied. I'm still, I am still literally amazed that I managed yeah. to get in there. But, but certainly the, the strategy I deployed was the strategy of, I can't do what I did. I can't be naive to think that this is an open field and you just put your letter in, they read every letter and then it's the best person. You've got to do, you've got to do more. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's when you started, I assume, to then form wider connections and, um, and, and say, right, how do I, you know, win friends and, 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 and then start that process where they can influence where I go next and, 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 and kind of, I suppose, lessening that, that six degrees, right? And, 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 and get, yeah. And, and, you know, certainly the things that followed for me immediately after that were as a direct result of being in that room and, um, mm. and also being, you know, back to the Richard Branson stuff, being stupid enough to say, yeah, I'll do that. I've got no idea what it is, but, you know, and, and, and this is where you get into a position of, um, you know, you, you think back in your life and you think, well, I'm, I hated it at the time, but I'm kind of glad that my entire life at the BBC was on six week, 12 week contracts because all of a sudden I'm not afraid of a fixed term contract. I'm not afraid of, we've got 12 months work and then we've got no idea what's next for you, Richard, because actually it still felt like a lifetime. It still felt like I can do something with that. I've got less to, to lose, less to give up if you like. And, and, and 12 months, that's fine. I can find another job in 12 months time. So, so all of a sudden then being asked by, you know, top of the office to say, well, we've got this thing called the innovation challenge prizes. And we've got this yep. thing called NHS global. Do you want to take them on? And you know, that BBC, say yes, make it happen, They'll, you'll find a way, coupled with that, that lack of fear of, it's not a permanent contract, I don't know where I'll be in 12 months time, gives you the opportunity to put your hand up and say, yeah, I will, you know, I am nervous as hell, but I'll take it on and I'll give it a go. And, and you, just, you just have to run with it. And, um, you know, for me, I, I very much saw, you know, this is your this is one of those moments, you know, it's your, it's your big, it could be your big break. It could be the last job you do in the NHS, but at least you'll, you know, you'll go down trying, but what are you going to do if you don't say yes? So I said yes to, um, to kind of getting into the department for health and doing, um, creating this thing called the innovation challenge prizes, which was all about innovation, as you can imagine, but it was also all about how do we better recognize and reward our staff who are going above and beyond to create things, adopt things, spread things. And then also at the same time, I did this thing called NHS Global, which was all about how does the NHS find its international market? What do we have to sell, to export that would be of value overseas? And how can we possibly do that without destabilizing the care that we're giving to our local residents and communities? Of course. Yeah, it makes sense. So, so for, for me, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking... You must you must have some sales skills there as well, then, because you know you talked about a head of a business development role um, or a business development role within um, was it Doncaster Ambassador? You said yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't imagine that was out and out sales. Sales, you know, like um, yeah. So, so what does that mean actually? Because I see that job title pop up, but what what, what does an NHS business development manager do? Yeah, and I think I mean I don't know what they do now. I mean I can tell you what I did and. So we were a first wave three-star foundation trust uh, and, yeah. and, and had been for a few years before I came along. And yet, you know, and, and you know, got to cast your mind back to 15 years ago, so maybe even more now, but I think there was a sense that um, foundation trust status 
means a lot. Uh, we have these new freedoms. We're not sure what that really means for us from a commercial point of view. You've got, um, uh, uh, oh, I can't even remember the name of it. Um, I want to say payment by results, but it wasn't. Uh, Practice-based commissioning. Practice-based right, commissioning. Okay. So yeah. Patient choice is a massive thing now. So in that era, um, a lot of my job in that role was about how do you shore up your current GP referral market? How do you work with GPs in Doncaster, Worksop, and the surrounding area to make sure that they see and trust us to be um, the place for their patients? How do you sure. make sure you kind of win in quotation marks on the patient choice agenda? And potentially, you know, how do you get into a market share kind of battle? I mean, it's the NHS couldn't have come a full 180 more than that if it tried, can it? You know, thinking about today's world of integration, but that certainly was the world. Sure. So, so it was more about being commissioned on um whether operations that were needed or um you know, different services within the hospital it was more about yeah it was that it was it was about saying look patients have a choice you know the choosing book system and the conversations with their with their gps are going to mean that they're going to think about what motivates them to choose a hospital and yes you could probably say that for a huge proportion of those patients they will go local they'll stay where they know they probably have friends and family who work at the local hospital and that might influence them as well positively or negatively you know, no one knew how transformational the patient choice agenda would be, um, but it got you thinking, how do we improve? How do we make sure that we at least shore up and safeguard our, our, our share of, of the population? And, and that, that led to a quality improvement kind of mindset. So, you know, and it, it made you not be complacent about this, the, the look and feel of the hospital when you walked in, the state of the car parking, the, the kind of um, customer service or not that we had when people telephoned. And I think as an NHS organization, we haven't really thought those things through previously. You know, what is our offer to patients as the, and, and to carers and to families as they engage with us as an organization? You know, when they walk in, how does it feel? When they phone us, we answer, how does it sound? Um, so all those kind of subtle customer service orientated improvements, I think, yeah. came about as a result of the patient choice era. Makes sense. Makes, makes perfect sense. So, so then you, you know, um, we'll fast forward a little bit and, uh, and to, to your current role then. So um, you're, you're, you're Chief Executive Officer of Yorkshire and Humber AHSN Network. Um, um, what was that like, that moment that you, that you got that, that Chief Exec role? Um, I think the only way I can equate it is to go back to how I felt when I got on the graduate scheme, actually. It was, it was exactly the same. And I think, um, again... Do you was... suffer with imposter syndrome? Do I suffer with imposter syndrome? Um, no, I'm not good enough to suffer from imposter syndrome. No, I, <laughs> you know, I, I think, do you know what? I mean, I certainly, I absolutely did. Um, and not just imposter syndrome, but also this, this sense of, um, you know, this is it for me. I think there's a, the BBC instilled on me, you know, gave me good things, gave me bad things. One thing I took from the BBC was this, this constant sort of Damocles way of working you know this sense of the, the the acts will fall every day every phone call is a bad phone call until you realize it's not a bad phone call and i think i've always suffered from that sense and i think fixed term contracts um you know being from a bme background seeing other people get opportunities it can't help but instill in you this sense of borrowed time so there's a really there's a really important 
um, quote from Samuel L. Jackson, which I absolutely believe and take to heart, which is, and I'm not going to be able to get every, every word right, but what Samuel L. Jackson basically says is, I've had to be four times as smart and work eight times as hard to be seen at the level of my peers. And that is something I completely believe. So um, that's how it's always felt. So whether Talk to me about those difficulties then that, that you face personally. Talk to me about um, how ultimately your race has, has um, made, made things more difficult for you to, to you know, get to the top or achieve more or be seen as equal to peers. Yeah, and I think this, this is a really, even that question is really interesting because um, it's incredibly difficult and, and very uncomfortable, but it's incredibly difficult, I think, as an individual, unless you've had any overt experience of clear and obvious racism, it's incredibly difficult as an individual to put any negative decision that's been made about you down to something that's All you can do is look at the, the wider numbers and statistics, um, particularly around senior leadership in the NHS, and say, mm. there is clearly something there. There is clearly an issue. Um, you know, the res data and other types of, of analysis will say, we have a problem on this. And therefore, you can, you can kind of bring it back to that individual and say, I don't know where it is. I can't tell you that these were the meetings or these were the conversations. But I can tell you, it has to be there. Otherwise, the metadata wouldn't make any sense. Of course. Um, so I've always really struggled to say, let me list for you the reasons why I have been denied opportunity. Um, and I think you can tie yourselves in knots. And I think people like me do tie ourselves in knots, actually. Second guessing, overanalyzing, and just being left in a very confused state mm. when you had an interaction or a decision go against you because you're never quite sure what this really means. Sure. And, and feedback or people's reasonings are always justifiable. Sometimes they're weaker than others. Um, but your personal view, I guess, I can't speak for everybody, obviously, but I always feel that it's, it's not for me to assume discrimination in, on, a, on an individual level and on, on an episode by episode level. You just have to know it's there. So you just have to accept that even if you've not seen it, even if, as is quite likely, you're not actually in the room where those conversations are taking place, even if, and this I think is incredibly likely, the people making those decisions aren't even aware of their own bias. Yeah. No, nobody in the room believes that racism is happening, but it is. Yeah. So, 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 so it's unconscious ultimately. Um, and, and, it, and it's that unconscious bias. Um, and, and obviously there's, there's, you know, there's, there's things that, that are programmed in place to now tackle unconscious bias. Right. Um, and, and I, and I have to, um, you know, tackle my unconscious bias. And you know what as well? And, and we spoke before off air. Um, you know, I think there's this whole conversation around race and diversity and inclusion and, and, and being, um, you know, um, equal opportunities and so on is such an uncomfortable conversation for, for certainly I feel, um, as, as white men as, as a whole or, or, or white people as a whole, um, because 
it's a case where, and even now I'm, I'm second guessing myself, making, making sure I don't say anything wrong. And, and this is the whole, and this is the whole point is that it's, it's an uncomfortable conversation because I don't know what's offensive and what's not offensive. Um, and I, and we spoke, we sat down at dinner, um, last year, I think it was when we went to the, um, to Confed and we, we sat down and had a nice meal together. Um, and I said to you, you know, is it, the fact that I'm conscious that, right, I need to make sure that I get a certain amount of people of color um, on, onto, my, onto my event agendas, for example. Is, is, is that in itself, is that, and you said, no, that's a good thing because you're conscious about it. And I was like, well, I don't, you know, is it a case where I shouldn't be thinking like that? It should be natural. And, and uh, I think it's, so, it's, it's such a difficult thing to talk about because, it's a very, very uncomfortable conversation for the reasons I've just mentioned. I, you know, people don't want to put their foot in it or their mouth in it no. um, and say the wrong thing. No, and I think, and I think, as we talked about off air, the the acknowledgement and awareness of the complexity and the uncomfortableness is in itself a step forward. And I think that, if nothing else, the conversation that's happened because of George Floyd, Black Lives Matters, the the pandemic and, and the health inequalities that have always been present but have been starkly revealed have changed the nature of the conversation. And not in, not in all communities, I'm well aware of that. And I think some, some nights I cannot go near Twitter because of, of, of the stuff that's on there. But certainly I think um, for, for most people, it's changed the nature of the conversation. It's, it's become a conversation of questions rather than statements. And I think that's the, a much better place to be. And if we can just keep asking ourselves those kind of questions, then we'll get into a dialogue, which I think ends up in the right place. But the point you mentioned about panels and things like that, I mean, the, the same can be true about positive action, you know, recruitment and other things and quotas and, and types of, you know, button issues that can, you know, really provoke outrage in, 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 in some parts of society. And I think I don't even know how I feel about aspects of those. Um, and I, it's something I think about often. And I guess, you know, I'd start by saying, I'm not a spokesman for the BME generation. You know, it's, I'm not a race relations expert. I just happen to be somebody who's mixed race. It took me a while to realize it's not my job, but I think that's what we are also talking about now. It's, it doesn't have to be my job. If you think about the ways that I go into the BBC through the Afro-Caribbean unit, you know, it's, it's probably not a way that would be deemed suitable um, or appropriate now to say, well, the black guy can only get in if you can find a black job to go and do. But that's what I had to do. But now I realize that I don't have to be the diversity candidate and I don't have to be the diversity leader. Now that's in attention with the other part of me that says, but people need role models, people need leaders. You're now in a privileged position, so you have to be able to speak. And I think I try and balance those tensions. But I think it's about saying, you know, we need better allyship. We need better white allies. We need, we need something called um, non-optical allyship, where white people are allies and doing general goods that helps to um, support and improve the agenda without necessarily using it as a vehicle or a bandwagon to promote their own profile. And I think if you look on social media in particular, you can see people who clearly have an, an optical allyship to this you know it is more important for me to be using the right hashtag it is more important for me to be seen to be somebody who is supportive but actually my actions um which are the only things that really matter equate to not very much of of very little so 
it's a really, really complicated field. But I guess, you know, coming back to this panels issue, the one thing I'd say, and I, I thought about this a lot is, in an ideal world, we wouldn't be selecting any panel based on gender balance or, or racial balance. Because we're generally saying, who are the people that we want to be able to speak on this topic? But it's not an ideal world. And we have to recognize that there are people who have credible voices on this subject, but because of the unconscious bias, because of the lack of a level playing field that we've spoken about, their voices aren't heard, their, their names don't come to people's mind. So we have to think harder, we have to think deeper, and we have to be able to say, have I actually given my all to think, though, who are the most credible speakers who speak on this topic and actually uncovered areas or networks that I've not necessarily tapped into automatically to find out other very credible voices and to give them a platform, rather than think, these are the first four names that spring to mind because it's my network, because I have an unconscious bias at play, they're gonna be the names of four white men. And I think that's the difference. It's about saying, it's not about saying um, it's not a meritocracy. It's about recognizing that by definition, we have our own networks that are probably predisposed to look like us. And if mm. we don't proactively think about other networks, then we're gonna be denying people a voice. Yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. Well, thank you, thank you for for that insight. And it's 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 such an interesting um, topic and such a sensitive topic. Um, but um, you know, and 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 again, you know, we spoke of you. You recommended me a book. You know, uh, why I stopped talking to white people about race. And again, you know, I, and, and anyone listening to this, um, I urge you to read that because I think it gives good insight into you know the the fact that and what I kind of got from it is that you know I can't understand um what what um you know um people you know um but, but the BAME community um has gone through because i'm not BAME and, and i have these these automatic unconscious privileges um, um and i have to be aware of that um and i think that's that's probably i think that's really probably the first step of just becoming conscious about it because you know you had the whole all lives matters white lives matters you know and all that stuff and i think that ultimately and i, and I think everyone gets this people are missing the missing the bloody point basically um and uh you know and 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 so but, but like i said it's it's a it's a it's a sensitive subject and it's one that needs to be be be, be approached um sensibly um and um, yeah. and all lives do matter of course you you put out the house that's on fire that's that's the point mm, yeah exactly that exactly that and uh um so Michael Holden, you know, he he done a, a great sports speech um, before before a cricket match, and really powerful, really really powerful. And, and I think that you know, he summed that up really nicely. Um, and um, you know, and, and that it's not a movement, you know, it's not an anti-white movement. It's a uh, unconsciously that's where kind of white people are, and it needs to be brought up to a level playing field. And and um, and that that well, that's how I understood it anyway. And um, so yeah, but anyway, right. Um, let's talk. Let's move on a little bit. Um, Let's talk about, you know, some of your, so you talked about, you know, some proud moments for you in your career and, and how that was, you know, getting into the, uh, into these kind of management trainee programs and, and other things. Um, you know, are there any, any other highlights for you career wise, you know, some, 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 some major highs for you, maybe in your personal life as well? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, huge, huge highlights in my personal life, not football as discussed. We won't, we'll not talk about football, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've got, um, uh, you know, I'm married to a beautiful wife and, you know, we're, we're our childhood sweethearts. So we've been together since we're 18. We've got two beautiful kids who are absolutely amazing in every way. And, and, and in many ways, I'm 
I am living the dream. I love my job. I love my family. I love my my home life. It's just it is just spot on. And um, I think the other thing though that, that um, I've really started to get a lot of enjoyment out of is the is the non work work. So I've become a non exec director of of a few things, and um, and actually I've started to get a huge amount of pleasure from that. So I think the the thing that gives me pleasure, the most pleasure I think outside of my my working my my job, I suppose that I'm paid for is. I'm a, a board member of, of something called the Local Enterprise Partnership for, for Sheffield City Region, which is basically the Economic Growth Board, the Private Sector Growth Board for the region. And that, again, has just opened my eyes to you know, a different um, environment, a different set of political leaders, and as particularly with us having a metro mayor here in Sheffield. And, and the ability yeah. to start to influence on you know, economic regeneration post-COVID, you know, the infrastructure build of our, of our urban areas in, in Sheffield, Rotherham, Barnsley and Doncaster, um, to work on the environmental strategy and you know zero carbon and start to think how can I grow jobs and, and I joined that board particularly because as I said to you earlier I was really passionate about the leveling up agenda and the fact that it's taken me doing this job in the HSN to realize what the southeast actually has you know not just London outside London as well compared to what we have here and if you know and I'd say it's, it's made me pretty angry to be honest to say that you know there is just a polarization of, of high value jobs that need to be spread out more and, and the LEP job gives me an ability to literally roll my sleeves up and, and make that happen. So I'm really, I'm really quite um, pleased and do you think, with the work. And do you think actually, you know, the whole COVID period where now video conferencing and working from home and, you know, you can work anywhere, anywhere, anytime has, will, will help to level that playing field because there is not a need for jobs to be in the home counties of London that can make train direct, you know, within a couple of, within an hour to the city or whatever it might be. Um, do you think that, that that helps? I think it's huge. I think it's absolutely huge. I think um, if you look to the US, particularly the West Coast, look at Twitter, Facebook, other big tech Palo Alto firms saying there's no need to come into the office ever again, we're going to have home-based working by default and you can live anywhere. And I think in terms of our, our, our relation to work and how we understand the difference between the communities where we choose to live and the sectors where we choose to work, I think that's going to be fundamentally changing. I also think perversely that areas, particularly like South Yorkshire, that even across a Northern comparison, you know, they're not Leeds and they're not Manchester. We don't have the AA grade office space that those places have. But I think that Bizarrely, that lack of investment may prove to um, allow us to, to win, I guess, in the end, because the whole model of a working environment is changing. So we don't know what people will need in the future, but I heavily suspect that it's not that high density of incredibly expensive office space that ex certainly exists in London and also you know, exists, as far as we're concerned, here in, in you know, Leeds and in Manchester. So it gives us an opportunity to think, is it now time to design the cityscape and the urbanscape for future? And is it more important now to talk about um, super fast broadband than it is to talk about Northern powerhouse rail? I mean, even, even six months ago, you know, the only story about leveling up and, and the Northern powerhouse was about the needs for HS3 and that, that intercity connection, you know, certainly across the M62 corridor, but also inc incorporating places like Newcastle as well, mm. as well as the HS2 connection to London. Now, the dust hasn't settled yet, I think, in terms of our understanding of, of big infrastructure build. But I'd be really surprised if the, the billions that we're about to 
um, um, driven into, into Northern Paris Rail in particular, are now better spent on different types of connectivity mm. and giving people like my kids the opportunity to genuinely do a high value, traditionally London based job from, you know, from the suburbs of Sheffield. Yep. Yep. And, and, and be paid in the same way as well for it. Um, well, you'd think so. I mean, I, I know that some of the big, the, big, um, the big social media companies are looking at differential pay depending on where you live, which is fascinating in itself. But to be honest, um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a fair point there that if you don't have to live in zone two, then you probably don't need the same kind of wages. But I'd, I'd, I'd hate them to, to take that to, this, um, to the limit of saying, well, actually, we're going to pay you know, minimum wage if you happen to live in, in, in um, yeah. Compared to yeah. in uh, in Chelsea, but we'll see. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, so what do you do? You know, in terms of your 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 role, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, you know your your data. How how would you describe your CEO role? How would you describe what you do for the network? Yeah, I think it's. Oh, I mean, how would I describe it? For me, I mean, the reason I love this job so much is it's it's enabled me to shape it into the things that I love doing most, and a lot of that is about you know. Two, well, two things really, connecting with people and, 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 and working with staff. And I think the thing I've loved most about being chief executive has been the shift from having a functional role to do as, as you know, formerly as commercial director and being able to say, actually, do you know what my job is to, to make everyone happy and then get out of their way? And I really, really loved that. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time in our organization working on culture. Um, you know, we, we, we're doing pretty well, even in the COVID environment, um, you know, our, our intense concern has been about the well-being of staff and, and that side of the job um, for me is, is has really just you know magnified my, my passion for it and then the other side is, is just connections and trying to make opportunities and it comes back to how I've kind of grown up in the NHS but recognizing that the power of networks the power of connectivity um, the power of being able to bring opportunity in and, and, and say yes you know say yes we can and, and we'll work out a way of doing it that's kind of my 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 uh, my role. I'm kind of a glorified director of business development again, really, because you know it's about going out there and saying what makes us better, what makes us stronger, what does Yorkshire want, and I think that that kind of place-based leadership, that kind of you know being able to just unashamedly bang the drum for Yorkshire and Humber, and say you know what's good for Yorkshire and Humber is good for my AHSN, and so what is it we can win? What is it we can? What inward investment can we bring? How can we get government to look more favorably on us here? You know, the whole piece of work we did very recently about leveling up Yorkshire and Humber, you know, trying to demonstrate the kind of investment that would help us in a post-COVID or living with COVID type of world. So that's my kind of job is, is you know, connecting and then trying to keep the staff happy. Sure. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that, that you can do that, trying to keep staff happy. And, and um, so I'll ask you around leadership. What, what, you know, what, what do you feel good leadership means? Um, I think so. I think Robert Greenleaf, servant leadership. I think that's, that's the kind of leadership I've always aspired to. So how, you know, your job is to go in there and and work out what it is your team needs to be successful in the way that they're doing it, and 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 to reward them appropriately for doing so. And I think that for me is is the is at the heart of at the heart of leadership, and and, and both on a a macro level in terms of I suppose organisational culture, but also in terms of having time to have conversations and talk to individuals and. Um, I'm um, I'm a massive fan of of a, of a professor of, at Leeds University called Beverly Alimo Metcalf, and when I was on the grad scheme, I, I I turned down three months 
um, abroad, because at the time I did the grad scheme, you were still allowed to kind of have a, a three-month placement um, internationally. And I, and I chose to do mine in Leeds, which isn't very international, is it? But um, the reason I did it was because I wanted to go to Beverly, and, and her work on transformational leadership really spoke to me. And, and what Beverly says, and I hope I'm not giving away her, her secret sauce here, but basically hmm. the fruits of her work are, she, her research shows that she believes there's 13 separate elements to what makes a transformational leader. But those 13 elements in and of themselves have different weightings. So if the 13 things make up 100% of the whole, then there's one, one of those elements in Beverly's research that makes up 60% alone. Oh, wow. um, and that element is showing concern for staff. So I, um, I was kind of, you know, learned at Beverly's feet really for, for three months and, and continued to kind of have this this kind of um, this kind of philosophy, leadership philosophy, kind of threw me in, and really the chief exec role has been my my attempt to try and practice what you preach, or kind of put your money where your mouth is, and say, mm. so that's the thing. If that's the thing that transformational leadership is all about, then let's see what it looks like, and and that can be done on a daily basis. That's it's not about the grand gesture; it's about the small things. It's about it's about talking to people about their day. It's about remembering to check in with how they're really doing and not just paying mm. service to those kind of conversations yeah but i think ultimately it's about saying to yourself as a leader this isn't an extra thing to do this is the job that you do you know the job that you do is to be able to make sure that your staff are okay and then everything else will take care of itself of course yeah absolutely absolutely and having that um you know you can't do it all on your own right so um, you have to have your staff into, you know, they're, they're the ones that they, they are the ones that are going to achieve your vision ultimately, or, or, or the combined vision for the organization. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I love that philosophy. I love that philosophy. So I think my last, my last question then um, to you will be, you know, you, you, you've got a role with pressure and, and uh, you know, probably quite heavy on your time and so on and so forth. So, so what do you do to un, 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 unwind and relax? Um, I need to be very truthful on this one, don't I? And, and just admit that I'm not doing whatever I'm doing. I'm not doing very well. I mean, so so what I do, I mean, so not not watch um, Sheffield Wednesday. I think is is definitely high. <laughs> I, think I really I really enjoyed the football pausing during lockdown and just having Saturday afternoons to myself when my blood pressure didn't just boil was pretty was pretty good this year. So that's just been give up, just give up, just stop, oh, no, just never, stop doing it. Never, never, never. Um, I love playing golf. I mean, I mentioned that earlier. I love playing golf. And, and, and one of the things I love about it the most is it's probably, I mean, I'm not brilliant by any means, um, if you know, I'm not brilliant at all. Um, but it's four hours of switching off, you know, no phones, no distractions. Um, it's a place where I'm actually able to completely focus my entire attention at the game. And that for me is really important. Um, but apart from that, you know, I try, I mean, obviously the usual things that a, a dad of two would say is, you know, there's not much free time is there, but the kids and my wife give me an awful lot of, um, an awful lot of pleasure and, and, and relaxation. I'm trying to be better at this. I'm, I'm trying to lead by example and, and, and think more about work-life balance. Um, I think that's particularly hard in a time of COVID. I think that's particularly hard when you're chained to a desk on Teams 10 12 hours a day and yeah. no, no breaks yeah but you you kind of got to say and this is what i'm trying to say to myself this is how we are this is it you know you can't wait for it to change this is how we are so you're gonna have to do things differently and, and for me what i'm trying to get into is, is more around kind of um, mindfulness and meditation 
I've been really lucky as a member of the NHS to be given access to things like the Headspace app and, and other things like that. So I'm very much trying to make that part of my practice on a daily basis rather than something that I do when I'm feeling stressed. And then similarly, I think with exercise as well, trying to make exercise part of your daily or weekly routine. And I can't say that I'm succeeding here, but this is, that's my goal. I think the things I find quite difficult at the moment are things like um, being home-based. And although I'm lucky enough to have a home office, you don't separate it perhaps as much as you would if the office was 20 miles up the motorway. So, so it's a work in progress for me. Um, but I do find that um, the strategy of having things in your diary that force you to turn your attention elsewhere, those are the kind of things that work for me. Yeah. So when I've got a different job to do in the evening, when I've got to take my son to football practice, whatever it may be, means that you have no choice but to say, this is what I'm doing now. If I leave those spaces empty, I find that work starts to invade. Yeah. And so trying to deliberately give myself non-work things to do, I think is, is, is my coping mechanism at the moment. But for me, yeah, but as I said, longer term, it's got to be about mindfulness. It's got to be about exercise. But yeah, I'd, any tips, <laughs> I'll be yeah. grateful, gratefully received. Yeah, well, no, I've... Um... I so when lockdown started, do you remember the the five k? You know, donate five. So so I'd went out for my first run there, and then I I'd done it for a period. I really enjoyed it. Hit like a goal that I was trying to hit with like a five k type, and then stopped again. Yeah, and it was just like, and, and actually, you you just you feel yourself become less productive, um, less um, motivated. Um, you, you know, you're you're still doing the work, but you're not enjoying it as much. And I've gone back in the last couple of weeks. I've, I've started this, this running program again that I was doing before. Um, um, I've got a, a friend that's like a running coach. And again, I've started it. And I just feel, you know, like this morning went out for a 6K run. And I just feel so, it just gives you so much energy. It gives you so much, um, you know, um, there's something that Joe Wick said on the podcast, you know, the, um, the, the body coach. Um, and he said, you know, the motivation is waiting for you at the end of your run or the end of your exercise. And it's, it's the pot of gold that you receive after because you never feel bad after you finish that, you know, no. a run or exercise. I and mean, it fills you and, and you, you have that rush of endorphins and, and so on and so forth. So um, for me, I've, I've definitely noticed a, a change in my attitude, mood and productiveness um, um, since I've been getting back into, into my exercise routine. So, so yeah, but um Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on. It's been, uh, it's, been, it's been really, really good to get to know the person behind the job title. Thanks, Jack. Enjoyed it. Nice Thank to see you. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to that episode of the PE podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure that you share this episode via your social media channels, as it really does help us to gain traction in promoting this podcast series. Please make sure that you also subscribe to the channel that you're listening via as you'll then get notifications as soon as we release our next podcast episode. Thank you.